0: Our scripture lesson this morning comes from the 22nd chapter of Revelation, verses 1 through 5. This portion of God's word is a continuation of John's vision of the holy city the New Jerusalem. So hear now the word of God in Revelation 22. Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of its street. On either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his bondservants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And there will no longer be any night, and they will not have need of the light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. Blessed is he who reads, and those who hear the words of the prophecy, and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near.
1: Please pray with me. Father, we have been carried to the highest point of the Bible and really the highest point of history. And we're not adequate for these things. So we pray for the ministry of your spirit now to teach and to lead us. I pray, Father, for the saints that you would feed us deeply upon Christ. And upon the kindness of your own heart and intentions. We're looking at your plans for us. We're looking at what Christ has accomplished for his people. We're looking at the future that his blood was shed to purchase. And we long oh Father that you would pour the spirit out that we would give the full measure of honor to Christ and to you. And we pray for those who who are uh, non-Christians and who have come into this room, uh, Lord, because you have been mercifully acting in their lives, whether they realize it or not. And we pray that on this day, uh, at the very summit of Scripture, that you would show them the greatness of Christ as your Spirit renews their heart and that you would give them the gift of life in Christ today, the gifts of repentance and faith, so that today would be the day of salvation for them. We ask these things for your... Uh, glory, and in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Well, I don't know about you guys, I'm on the last page of my Bible. And uh, it's funny, uh, but not unexpected. It's the same point on the last page as on the first page, and on every other page in between, and every paragraph and sentence and phrase and syllable. In between the beginning and the end, it's the same message, and the message is this, that history is God's story. History is His story. History is the story of God's triumph. Now, when God first speaks for Himself in the book of Revelation, He does it in chapter 1, verse 8, and He does it to identify Himself, and He says there in the very first chapter of the book, He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now, we're native English speakers, most of us. And when we hear that last phrase, who is to come, we think of that. We're kind of wired because the way our language is structured. We're wired to think that that's a statement about God's future existence. In other words, when God says he is the one who is to come, we were wired to, to interpret that as God saying, I am going to exist into eternity future. Now, that is true about God. But that is really not the point of that phrase in the Greek. And I'm sorry I'm doing this to you. But in the Greek, that's a participle. Which means that you, you probably ought to translate it this way. Who is and who was the coming one, the one who is coming. And that really captures, I think, the movement in the book. Uh, There's a movement of God coming to the creation that he has made in both judgment and in blessing first through Christ in his first coming. That's what the cross is, right? The day of the Lord began, the Lord came to judge and to bless first when his son came the first time. And then also in the second coming, which we see in the book of Revelation. And then there's a movement, right, by the time we get to Revelation 22, where God's throne has moved. It has literally moved from heaven, where we saw it in chapters 4 and 5. Now that throne has moved to earth in these first five verses in chapter 22. And so what we're looking at, friends, is the answer, ultimately the fulfillment. This is a vision of what reality will look like, as it were, using images and using symbols. But what those symbols point us to is the reality that one day the Lord's prayer will, in fact, be answered and God's kingdom will come to earth. And the breach between earth and heaven will be fully healed and those will merge in the new heaven and the new earth. Isn't that interesting how that's one phrase, the new heaven and the new earth? Because they're together. That's what you're praying for at the beginning of the Lord's Prayer. And that's what we're being shown. So we're seeing the throne. It's always been in heaven in this book up till now. But now in 22, 1 through 5, it's on the earth. And what's been happening, I don't know if you've noticed it, but in chapter 21 and the, the, the two vision parts of chapter 21 and now the beginning of chapter 22, what's been happening once John begins to be shown at the beginning of chapter 21, the new heaven and the new earth, what's been happening is we've been being brought, carried closer and closer and closer to the throne. What started out in the first four verses of chapter 21 was John saw the, the city coming down out of heaven. From God. And he saw it from a distance, and we got a very brief overview of the description. And then, remember verses 5 through 8 in chapter 21. Give us God. God hits the pause button, as it were, on the future visions, and then explains their significance into the present. And for for five verses, and then he or four verses, and then he turns back in verse nine. And John is carried up onto a high mountain by the angel. And then what we looked at last week is a much longer passage that gives us much more detail about the bride, the people of God. But the perspective there in those verses. Which goes on for 18 or 19 verses. The perspective, though, is mostly an external perspective. What is John gets a better look at it, but it's mostly from the outside. The walls, the gates, the foundation stones, the light being admitted off of it. And then toward the end of chapter 21, we begin to go inside the city. We see that its streets are gold. But now, now in chapter 22, we are right in front of the throne of God. We're in the center Of the city. We're at the the source, the fountainhead of everything that the city is about. And it's all defined. What we're discovering in these five verses is that everything, every aspect of the beauty of this city and all the blessings of the city, they come from God's throne. And so that's what I want to look at with you this morning is the throne and what it what it teaches us about God and what it teaches us about our future. And if you're a a non-Christian, and you're visiting with us this morning, one way I I, I thought about to suggest to you, one way for you to think about how this passage relates to you is for for you to really see this passage in all of its beauties as a way by which a window into God's heart, by, by which you know God's character, by watching the goals, paying attention to the goals that he has for his people. And this is a way also that you will know because it is the throne. Did you notice twice the throne of God and of the lamb who is Jesus Christ? This is also then an illustration of the ultimate fruits that Christ's work of dying and rising again have achieved. So this is like a window into the heart of God and a window into the ultimate ends that are secured by Christ's work. So that's, that's what you need to know most urgently this morning as a non-Christian. So I, I pray that, that this passage will be helpful to you. And there are four headings that I want to look at this morning about the throne. The first is that we see it's a throne of life. Then we see that it is a throne that honors Jesus Christ. And then we see that it is a throne of love and then finally we see it is a throne that celebrates the triumph of God. Let's look first at this aspect of the throne, this theme, that it is a throne of life. And that's really the first impression, isn't it? I mean, when John, what John sees about this throne of God and of the Lamb is that it, it there's just life everywhere. It's just exploding out of these early verses, isn't it? I mean, it's just... There's abundance of every kind. John sees this river of the water of life, and it's flowing down the middle of the street in the city. And on either side of this river, it's so fertile that the tree of life. Now, how you get a singular tree on both banks of a river? I'm figuring this out. Okay, but it bears fruit. It bears 12 kinds of fruit. It bears fruit every month, and its leaves are for the healing of the nations. There's just life everywhere you look. Abundance and energetic life. And the fruitfulness of that tree is not a statement about the tree. It's a statement about the river that feeds the tree. Right? Everything keys off that river. Everything that you see, all the abundance and all the blessing, key off of. They are fruits downstream from this River and I appreciated Jonathan's comments so much about our Old Testament lesson because this Can't you hear the echoes of Ezekiel 47 in these five verses? That's why I wanted it read. And Jonathan was right. You know, in that what, what Ezekiel sees, Ezekiel, I'm convinced that John just spent a lot of time in the book of Ezekiel. It is it shapes so much of the book of Revelation And when you get to the end of Ezekiel, uh, Ezekiel chapters 47, 48, just some some remarkable things happen that that anticipate uh, things we have seen in the book of Revelation. 47, what John, the angel brings, um, brings John to the to this ideal temple, this end times temple uh, symbol. And he sees this trickle water. It's a very weird image. I don't know if you caught it. It starts as a trickle. The headwaters are a trickle. But as you walk away from it, it continues to get wider and deeper. And so you look at the and There are no tributaries flowing into it. And you look at it and you go, well, where's the water coming from? I mean, it starts out so small. How does it fill everything? And then eventually, you know, if you actually looked at a map and you followed the instructions, but you guys have hobbies, so you don't have time to do that. But if you did that, what you'd see is actually that this water Geographically flows over mountains. And then it goes down not into the, the reference to the sea is actually the Dead Sea and the sea that the waters transform and make the, 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 the river, the, the river's waters transform the Dead Sea in, in, uh, in the NAS. It says that the river's waters are fresh, It uh, makes the sea's waters fresh. It literally means he healed. And the Dead Sea, which does not produce life, when those waters come into contact with it, it teems with fish. It's like like Genesis 1 again. Swarms. Same language as Genesis 1. Life. We're back before the fall. Nature's being renewed. And Ezekiel says in verse 9, everything will live where the river goes. I love that. And that's what we see fulfilled in Revelation 22. Everything lives where this river goes, right? In Revelation 22, we, nature has been renewed. The entire earth has been renewed. And we, we've been returned to the garden. And the reason is because this river comes from the throne of God. That's really the key, is to see the source of the river. It comes From the throne of God and of the Lamb. Now, don't miss the symbolism. It's not hard and it's not subtle. Life comes from God's rule, not in rejecting it. Abundance comes from celebrating the rule of God, not by rebelling against it. Fruitfulness comes comes from a life that acknowledges and celebrates the kingship of God, that acknowledges gratefully the power of God, that acknowledges and delights in the glory of God. That's where life and abundance and fruitfulness come from. Do you notice there's no rebellion in this city? There's no skepticism about the intentions of God in this city. There is no arrogance in this city. And what are the fruits? Joy, energetic abundance, so much fruit and riches, you don't know what to do with them all. That is so vital to see, not just for the future, but for the present. Right. I mean, they're ultimately that what's true in the new heavens and the new earth is true now. Right. I mean, this this reality that all of life comes from God and that that life life that is in submission to God and in recognition of his work through the lamb Jesus Christ that that recognition that submission that celebration that is what gives life now too I mean this is just a, a fast forwarding of what is already true lives that are joined to Jesus Christ joined to God through Christ bear fruit John 15 right He is the vine and we are the branches and we bear his fruit. We are brought when we when we repent of our sins and trust in Christ, we are literally moved by God's grace. We have passed out of judgment. This happens on this side of this glory. We have passed out of judgment and into life. Friends, do you know that that is available to you this morning? This abundance is available to you this morning, that the generosity of God's heart is flowing just as freely this morning toward you as this vision of the future set before you. What God means to do in your life and in my life is to call us back to that throne and to bring all the cynicism that we have, all the skepticism, all the hard thoughts that we have about God, all the small visions we have of his purposes and the way that he enriches life. Bring them all to the foot of this throne and repent. And acknowledge that we have sought life. We have pursued it elsewhere. We have pursued refreshment and renewal and strengthening from broken cisterns that can hold no water. We have forsaken each of us. Whether you are a non-Christian or a Christian, right? We do this because sin still dwells in us. We have forsaken the fountain of living waters. God's reminding us what's true here. God alone gives life. You notice what happens. Ultimately, the river's effects. I think the best summary for the river's effects here are in verse 3. It's that simple announcement. But if you've been with God through the Bible and you recognize what, where we've come from, right? When verse 3 opens up and says, And there shall no longer be any curse. I mean, if I were Handel, and I'm not... But if I were an opera composer, I would have a libretto, and that would be the only text in the libretto. And we would sing that over and over and over again, and there would be long stretches of contemplation after that sentence. There shall no longer be any. do you want that future do you believe that god has planned that future for his image bearers and for nature and do you believe that christ has entered the world lived died risen again and is exalted to the father's right hand in order to guarantee that future there shall no longer be any curse and this is this is the summary of Everything that will be true about uh, what God's intentions and purposes and effects are in the new heaven and the new earth. And there's two there's two arenas in which the curse is removed in the future. We've already talked about one it's that, is that nature has been healed. There are no thorns and thistles in the new heavens and the new earth. Right. I mean, the curse has been lifted when when Adam and Eve sin. It's amazing. The earth is punished. Did you ever notice that in Genesis 3? The ground is cursed. Well, what? It's because because man was in charge of the ground. And God wants everywhere a man or woman looks outside of themselves to know that there's been a fall. Not just through self-examination, but by opening your eyes. And now in the future, Right? The curse is lifted. All of creation is healed. The tree of life is there. Twelve kinds of fruit, yielding fruit every month. And those leaves are for the healing of the nations. All because of the river. This vision of creation being healed. But much more importantly is that that the nations are healed, right? The leaves are for the healing of the nations. This river produces ultimately the healing of the nations. And what that means is not political states but nations are made up of people. This is talking about mankind being healed. It, what we're seeing, really, is the fulfillment of God's plans for man here. This is what it means, at last, to be truly and fully human And there's just some amazing things that are said about our future. This is is how God defines what it means to be truly human. Number one, we'll serve Him. You see that? In verse 3, And His bondservants shall serve Him. Now, will it not be, I ask you, Christian, will it not be an unending joy to serve a king so glorious, so good, so perfectly faithful, so righteous, So giving, will it not be an unending joy to serve a king of such glory? That will not be drudgery. That will not be bondage. That will be joy. His bondservants shall serve Him. We shall also fully know Him. Do you see that? In verse 4, and they shall see His face. (laughs) Think about the end of 1 Corinthians 13. For now we see in a mirror dimly. But then, face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. All the shame will be lifted from us, friends. All the guilt will be totally gone. We will be completely renewed. We will not have any need to hide our face from God and He will have no cause to hide His face from ours. Now, if that doesn't stir your heart, you need to pray that God will give you holy longings. Third thing, we shall belong to Him. And His name, verse 4, His name shall be on their foreheads. What's that? Is that a tattoo? No, that's a symbol of the fact that not only will we be given access to God, but, but he will have taken us for his own. We'll be his treasured possession. That's a picture of intimacy and belonging to him. And number four, which may be my favorite promise, and you've heard me preach about this throughout this book, we shall be kings forever. All of us. Who are in Christ and they shall reign, verse 5, they shall reign forever and ever. What Adam and Eve forfeited, right? When they rebelled against God, Jesus Christ has secured for his people forever. And that is amazing generosity to say of those who were once sinners that they will reign forever and ever is just such an amazing generosity of God's heart. Because the main way that God is identified in the book of Revelation is the throne. That's the main way that the Father is identified in the book of Revelation. The same way that the Lamb is the main and preferred name for the Son, Jesus Christ. The Father's main name in Revelation is the throne. And so in a book which places so much emphasis upon the throne and rule and kingship of God, here is this vision for the future of humanity, and it emphasizes that we will reign. In other words, God is so generous that he is making a future for us in which we will reign. Reign with him. I mean, that, that just blows me away how generous that is. Now, you know, we were at this debate, I said, on Thursday night, and it was very interesting. Hitchens is a really smart guy, and he's remarkably perceptive in a self perceptive kind of way about his own worldview. I mean, he's a very passionate, articulate, intelligent atheist. And one of the questions that was uh, being debated between them was what about uh, science and Christianity? And Hitchens began his response to that by talking about how the fact that you are a scientist doesn't necessarily mean that you won't be a person of faith. And then he proceeded to list all these s- s- scientists who actually were nut jobs, according to him. So he's saying, see, you can be a scientist and be, be whacked out. And after he got done with that introduction, and I recorded it, so I, I, last night I wrote down this, the words exactly because it was the most significant quote for me in the whole thing. Now, this is a guy who's a passionate atheist, and here's what he says. He got down right to the nub of his worldview. You know, as, 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 as I've set before you, as Revelation 22 has set before you what God's plan is for humankind through Christ, that we look at the dignity of this, look at the power of it, look at the authority and the glory and the joy and the fulfillment of it. I want you to I want you to see what God intends and what he has accomplished through Christ. And then I want you to put it alongside what Hitchens said. And here's what he said. He said, you either believe that you are here because of the operations of evolution or randomness in natural selection or a combination of the two so that it makes not much more sense to ask why we are here than it does to ask why our cats here or why our falcons here or you believe We are, in some sense, not just the product of a design, but that we are the awesome object of design. I say, amen, that is true. Do you realize that that is what this passage is saying? And it is not arrogant for us to say that mankind is the awesome object of a design. Because that is what God has revealed. We are not inventing that for ourselves. We are simply acknowledging what the Creator, the Designer of all has declared to be true. We are humbled by that. It matters what you believe. Do you really believe? If you're a non-Christian, I just ask you to search your heart Deep down, when no one else is looking, when you are all alone, do you really believe that it makes no more sense to ask why you are here than it does to ask why a cat is here? I hope the answer is no. It it grieves me to think that you might believe that. When God has a vision for your life, that is so much more beautiful and lovely and gracious and glorious. God wants to make you a king. He's made every provision for that to happen, for you to be brought home and washed and cleansed and forgiven and made a co-heir through his son, Jesus Christ. He's made every provision for that. Will you not embrace his goodness to you today? It is not just a throne of life. It is a throne. That's my longest point, so don't worry, Okay. It's also a throne that honors Jesus Christ. I want you to see that. The throne is called the throne of God and of the Lamb. So there is this new phrase that's come into the the throne, right? It's a single throne, but notice it's the throne of God and the Lamb. It's a throne that they share. It's not two thrones, it's one throne. And the Lamb is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is called the Lamb in Revelation 31 times in this book. That is the name for him in Revelation. And, of course, that just immediately evokes all kinds of themes, right? When, we, when Jesus is identified as the Lamb, we are being taken to the cross. We are, we are being, being caused to think about sacrifice, about atonement, about substitution, And that's the way Revelation wants us to know Jesus Christ and for eternity. You notice this at at the at the climax of the new heaven and new earth at the center will be a throne. And that throne is a single throne of God and of the Lamb. So for all eternity, one of the chief and leading beauties in the new heaven and earth is the fact that we will be looking upon the son of God who gave himself for our sins. And we will never forget it. And we will always make it the heart of our worship. And it will always be the key to why the Father wants to honor the Son and why the angels sing of the Lamb's worthiness. Because He is the Lamb who was slain, that is why He was worthy. And so for all eternity, the new heaven and the new earth will be beautified, decorated... By this one who was the Lamb. He will be given honor for all eternity. And the Father makes this unmistakable because He shares His throne with Him. Twice. Do you notice in verse 1 and in verse 3? The throne of God and of the Lamb. This is important in these five verses. And the Father, the Father is so committed to the Lamb's glory. Do you remember? It's a long time ago, and it's a galaxy far, far away, I know. But once upon a time, we were in chapter 4 or 5. And do you remember how those chapters unfold? Those are the the key panels of this book, those two chapters. And in chapter 4, the Father who sits on the throne is honored and worshipped in heaven, and is called worthy by the four living creatures, right, and the elders. And then you get to chapter 5, and the Lamb is worshipped. The Father doesn't say a thing in either chapter but receives worship in chapter 4 and then gives the book to the Lamb in chapter 5. And, and, and that giving of the book to the Lamb ignites the worship of heaven of the Lamb. And, and the angels, the myriads of angels, erupt and say of the Lamb the very same things that they said of the Father. Worthy. And as the Father watches... The lamb received that worship. What he is saying is, I agree. This is what I want to be true for all creation. And so we're at the climax of the father's passion to honor the son here in chapter 22. He's sharing his throne with the lamb. Notice in chapter 5, the lamb is standing. Right Everywhere else, the lamb is standing in the book of Revelation. And now he's seated on a throne with the father. Because the Father is honoring him. That is what that symbolism is. So what relevance does it have to us? Well, I think a very practical one. First, we need to learn at the feet of the Father. We need to learn what matters. The Father's response to reality is reality. And if the Father has a passion for the Son... And if the Father has a zeal to honor the Son, and if the Father is eager to grant the highest of honors to the Son, the Lamb, then friends, how much more should that be true of us who are covered by that Lamb's blood? Jesus Christ is great. He is magnificent. He is worthy of the highest accolades and most passionate pursuits in your life. There is no equal to Him. You've been covered by your blood, by His blood. He's poured Himself out for you and the Father has elevated Him and given Him the name that is above every other name. He said of Him, You are worthy. And we find it hard to find time for Him. We find it hard when we pray to linger on praise we go straight to requests we rush by the beauty to bring our grocery list friends we need to learn from that the father lingers on the honor and glory of his son but more than than that he's great he's great specifically because of his cross it is the lamb's throne okay and and so you know as a non-christian if you're here what you need to know is that the key to the greatness of Jesus Christ now and for all eternity is the fact uh, of his cross the fact that he gave himself as a sin-bearer to die in the place of his people that is the key to the greatness of Jesus Christ it's not his courage it's not his moral teaching it's it's not his it's not his wisdom it's not his compassion it's not even his love those are not what define The greatness of Jesus Christ. Jesus is admired by unbelievers for all those things, is he not? And yet that is not the key. That is not the ground. That is not the root. That is not the point of his greatness in all eternity. It is that he is the lamb. It is the throne of God and not simply of Jesus of Nazareth, but it is the throne of God and of the Lamb who stands as if slain, who holds the book. It is the one who went to the cross for it is in the cross that all those things ultimately reach their supreme demonstration. It is at the cross that Jesus's compassion is most clearly shown. It is at the cross Right, That his courage is most clearly shown. It is at the cross that his wisdom is most clearly displayed. It is at the cross, my friends, where his love is made known to the world. Oh, love the greatness of Christ and love him for the reason that we will love him for all eternity. And that heaven and the Father honor him for it is his cross. That's why Paul says, may it never be that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's why he stands in the middle of Corinth with fear and trembling and says, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He's right on track. He is right on track with what the theme song of eternity is going to be. And again, if that sounds like God would go to you, I pray that God will give you light by His Spirit to see one loving and dying for those who needed him at the cross and offering himself even this morning through his word to you. The third aspect of this throne is that it is a throne of love. It is a throne of love. And it's a throne of love first because it is the throne of God the Father. It's so important to see you know, sometimes we, we, we get our categories mixed up and we think, you know, the Father is the, the holy and righteous judge and, and Jesus is the gentle, meek, and loving one. And we live often under a concern that we have disapproved the Father. The Father has disapproved of us because of our conduct in some way. And we live under a shadow. And that's so unhealthy. And it's so contrary to the Gospel. Because, friends, the Father is the author of redemption. It is the Father who is the one who sent His Son into the world. It's the Father's love that sends the Son into the world. John 3.16. Let's go back to Christianity 101. For God so loved the world. It's that love that is the fountainhead of Christ's ministry. It's not some dispassionate calculation, some accounting resolve on the part of the father. When the Bible wants to explain why God sent his son into the world, where it goes is the father's love for the world. So when we look at this throne and see it as a throne of God and of the lamb, we must see love there. We must see this as a throne of love because this is the throne where the idea, the vision for redemption, for our salvation in Christ was conceived. Where the resolve was formed. Where the plans were commanded. The Father so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son as a lamb to take away its sins. That whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. And then... Not only was it the Father's love that sent His Son into the world, but it was His Father, the Father's love that sent His Son to the cross. 1 John 4.10 In this is love. The definition, language. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that God loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. The Father's love. And know this about the cross, my friends. The cross, this is so important. The cross does not purchase the love of God for the sinner. The cross, the sacrifice of Jesus, does not cause the love of God the Father for the sinner. The cross is the effect and fruit of that love. The cross flows from a river of love from the Father's throne. For us, Yes, this is a throne of love. Love of the Father for us. Love of the Son for us. It is a throne of love because it is a th- the throne of the Lamb. And when we look upon the Lamb there in this image, we look upon love. Friends, think about Him. He valued His own people more than His own life. He valued us who were sinners and rebels against God. He valued us. More than his own safety, more than his own glory, more than his own honor, more than his own freedom, more than his own prosperity. He valued us more. Than his own interests. He counted our interests, Philippians 2, as more important than his own. And John tells us, well actually Jesus tells us in John's Gospel, Greater love has no man than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. Friends, that is how Jesus loves you. That is how he loves you, whether or not you feel it. I was thinking this week about 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. Paul says there, for the love of Christ controls us. Is that an emotional thing? I mean, I read that. For years I've read that. And I've even preached on that text. And I didn't notice something until this week. For the love of Christ controls us. That is a a word that talks about just an incredible force that the love of Christ exerts. Now, is that an emotional word? Does it control us only insofar as I feel it? No, that is not a verse about feelings. Because listen to the next thing that Paul says. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this. That one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. All of that happens up here. The love of Christ controls you as you meditate on it and believe it, as you think it through, friends. Now, yes, we want our hearts to be in sync with our minds, but not, as, not insisting on that as a precondition to believing in the love of God. Please. It's the throne of love because the Father's throne. It's the Father's throne because it's the Lamb's throne. But there's also our love for God and for the Lamb. This is a throne where we love God finally, where we have been freed to love Him as we were made to love Him as Christ lived and died and rose again to love us. Have you thought about that? That one of the great gifts of the new heaven and the new earth will be that you will finally be freed to return to God the praise and adoration and love that you want to give Him, Christian? but that your pipes are so clogged they can't. Your eyes are so wandering. Your heart is so often divided. Friends, does it not burden you on this side of glory? You know, when we get a glimpse, when we come around a corner in life and we get a glimpse of the beauty of what God has done in Christ, we don't live at the vista point. I don't live at the vista point. But I drive my car and every once in a while, I, as it were, I come around a corner and it's boom! What I'm able to see of what God has done for me in Christ is so much greater than what I return to him. That grieves me. Does that burden your own hearts? Do you look forward to a day when you will be renewed to love what is most lovely and the one who is best and who is full of goodness and that you will have no regrets? and you will return precisely in measure and proportion what his glory and honor deserve from you. When you will be able to offer to him something that is congruent with his true greatness and glory. Friends, we will be freed to love him in that way as we are before his throne. Think about what Peter says. In 1 Peter 1.8, I love this verse. This means so much to me. You know, I've been thinking about this, this phrase, and they shall see his face. To finally see the Father's face. To finally see the Lamb's face. To be that close to them. To no longer walk by faith, but by sight. To be in their immediate presence. And then I, my mind went to First Peter 1, where, where Peter says, though you, speaking of Christ actually, Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Right? We haven't seen Him, have we? But we love Him. And though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Friends, if that's true now, what will it be like when we do see Him? Jesus says to Thomas, Blessed are those who have not seen The blessing of Jesus is upon us in that way. We will be rewarded, friends. And finally, it's a throne that celebrates the triumph of God. This is really the key. It's a throne that celebrates the triumph of God. I just want you to think with me about how fitting, how glorious a conclusion this vision is to the Bible's storyline. And I'm going to I'm going to take you through the whole Bible here in about five minutes. Okay? And I know you don't believe I can do that. So pray for me. The Bible begins with creation. God has a plan. Genesis 1 and 2. He creates man and woman. He creates them in his image, and he puts them in a garden. And they are to live in harmony with him. They live in obedience under his law. How long, we don't know. But they do. And they're prospered in that relationship, right? The, the garden overflows with abundance. Sound familiar? And God gives them a, a mission. There's kind of a, a close-by mission, and then there's a bigger picture mission. The close-by mission is that they are to tend the garden and to cultivate it. But that's not the only thing that he tells them. He gives them a much larger vision, actually, in chapter 1. And he says, now, here's what it means to be my image bearers. You're supposed to be fruitful. You're supposed to multiply, you're supposed to fill the earth, you're supposed to rule it, you're supposed to subdue it. All as my image bears. In other words, I think the vision that we're supposed, to, we're supposed to take away from Genesis 1 and 2 is God puts Adam and Eve in the garden, but his vision is ultimately that through them, their descendants, as they fill and multiply, will actually transform the whole earth into that garden where God dwells, where he's honored, and worshiped. Well, that was the plan. That was God's design for man and woman, but in Genesis 3 they fell. And so they were expelled from the garden, but and then there was the fall, I mean the flood. But man continued to be fruitful and multiply, didn't he? If you read Genesis. Even though Uh, Man had rejected God's original purpose for him, that he would live, that men and women would live under God's authority and live in the world in order to extend God's reign. Um, Even though they rejected that through the fall, they continued to be fruitful and multiply. And they continued to fill the earth. And then you get to Genesis 11, which is the chapter about the Tower of Babel. And it's interesting. The men and the women, there's a lot of men and women now There's enough of them that they want to build a city. They've been fruitful. They've multiplied. They've filled the earth. And so they want to build a city. And when man, apart from God, resolves to build a city, you know what's at the center of the city? It is a tower that they plan will reach to heaven. What's happened is the pride of man has gotten so viral. Here's what I want you to think about this the pride of man has gotten so viral their ambition has now risen to the heights of intending to invade or storm heaven it's not enough to fill the earth it's not enough to rule and subdue the earth under the the kingship of God no we want to storm heaven we don't need God and what does God do He laughs, first of all. Oh, let me see this tower that you're building. Oh, I'm nervous. And that's really, ultimately, how he thinks about our disobedience at one level. It's preposterous. He's king. He owns history. It's his triumph that we're going to see in history, not unbelieving man's. He was at that debate, Christopher Hitchens, and one of the elements of God's emotional life during that debate was so pathetic so God scatters men and the women and they go to the ends of the earth now we're all the way at the end of the bible Christ's ministry on the earth son has come son has lived the perfect life died the substitutionary death risen from the grave for our justification gone uh, to heaven has returned in triumph in his second coming. And now, here's what I want you to see. God gives a city to men. Right? There's a city that comes down out of heaven from God. It's no longer, right, men trying to invade heaven, but it is God now at the end of the Bible invading graciously earth from heaven. And he is the one who makes the city In the new heaven and new earth in which we dwell, he gives us not just earth, but he gives us the new heaven and the new earth. And his throne comes all the way down and we live before him forever. You see, God has triumphed. His goodness has triumphed. His love has triumphed. He's conquered men's sin. He's conquered all their cynicism. What God has planned for his people is greater than any dream or thought that has ever entered anyone's heart or mind. Friends, this is where history is going because this is where God says it's going. This is his story. And what he calls each of us to do is to align our lives with that purpose and to move forward confident that in Christ he will bring it about let me pray Lord we lift your name up because you are the hero of history it all belongs to you and we bless you for your son Jesus would you make the truth of your son fruitful To a harvest of eternal life in this room. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.